So we're in Matthew 25. We come back tonight one more time to sit with Jesus and His close companions late in the evening on the mountain called Olivet. So I invite you to find an olive tree, sit down and kick back, and listen in as Jesus is talking. So far, He's given us a concise calendar of events leading up to the very end. He's talked about birth pains and tribulation and the abomination of desolation. He's talked about the great tribulation. And He's led all the way up to His glorious return. And throughout His teaching, the Lord has been painting for us a clear picture of the condition of the world in the last days. Even reading Matthew 24 and 25 alone, just these two chapters should give us insight and understanding about the last days, what they should look like, what we could expect Things that we're seeing all around us if our eyes are open and we're paying attention. Back in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, the Lord said, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. He's talking about the condition of the world in the last days. He says down in verse 12, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. He says down in in verse 24, he says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Speaking, I believe, about the time of the tribulation itself. He says in verse 38, as in those days, he says in verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking. Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, or received, as we've talked about. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be received, taken. One will be left. The Bible is not lacking in describing the difficulties and challenges in the run-up to the end. But it is also not lacking, Jesus is not lacking in the necessity of preparation for those days, for these days. He gives us everything we need to be prepared, to live lives prepared. Verse 25 of Matthew 24, Jesus made this statement, Behold, I have told you in advance. I'm letting you know these things ahead of time so you can be ready. He doesn't leave us guessing. Verse 13 of chapter 25, Jesus made this statement, Be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. Now you may recall from Sunday, that verse rounds out the parable by which Jesus described a drowsy people, the bridesmaids, picturing the people of Israel alive during the time of the tribulation. As we talked about Sunday, Israel is today very sleepy. When the wake-up call comes... There are those who are heart ready. They may not even realize it, but they have been pursuing the Lord. And when the Lord finally reveals Himself in a, how can I put this, in in an Old Testament way, when He begins to act in the way that He did with the Jewish people in previous years, in the past, there are those who are heart ready. They're going to wake up to it. They're going to recognize God is at work. They're going to recognize Yeshua is, was, the Savior, did come as promised. They're going to see the prophecies. It's going to make sense. At least a third of Israel is going to wake up to these things like the bridesmaids who had the oil and were prepared for the coming of the groom. Tragically, many will not. Do you relate to that at all? Do you ever find yourself spiritually drowsy? I'm amazed at how easily it happens. I mean, I can be... Bible closed for a day and a half and start to get sleepy and start to forget to think about the coming of Jesus. I've said before, man, when we were in the midst of the Revelation study, for those nine months, it was all I was thinking about. And I think about 27 hours after the last teaching, I was already getting sleepy. And it's amazing how quickly it happens. A few days go by, or a week, or a month. And you realize you just haven't really thought much about the fact that Jesus is coming back. You haven't thought about maybe the imminence of Jesus' return. Well, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians, let me just read this to you. Ephesians chapter 5 had this to say in verse 14. Awake, sleeper, 
and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He sets that apart, by the way, that that little phrase that it was probably an early hymn, probably an early church song that they sang. It's kind of a mixture of several different prophecies, but it's not exact to any one prophecy, so it's thought that maybe that was an early church hymn. I think that would make a great song. Maybe we'll sing it one day here. Arise, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's, that's a great chorus. Some, somebody write a song with that, okay? Therefore, be careful how you walk, Paul says, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Use your time wisely. The days are evil. Have your eyes open. He says in verse 17, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. And speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things, all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I thought it was funny the other day, Corey called Hayden a pessimist. (laughs) He was like, Dad, Mom, Corey called me a pessimist. What's a pessimist? <laughs> and Aiden was having a rough afternoon. He was down on something. Corey said, you're such a pessimist, man. And Aiden's like, what's a pessimist? A pessimist is someone who is not singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord. A pessimist is someone who is not, as Paul prescribes for us, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you're prepared for the end. That's how you prepare for the parousia. The what? The parousia. It's the word coming. In the Greek. Parousia. It's the word that Jesus uses back there in Matthew 24. In verse 27 when he talks about being ready for the coming of the Lord. The parousia. Be prepared for His coming. Well, how do I do that? How do I live a life prepared? Well, Jesus continues and gives us more insight in how to be ready for His coming. Verse 14 of Matthew 25. It is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. The parable of the talents. You've probably heard it before if you've been in church any amount of time. The parable of the talents. But we're not talking shekels here. We're not talking small amounts of money. A talent is approximately equivalent to 15 years' worth of wages. A talent was measured out in pounds of silver, and it's estimated at somewhere between 58 and 80 pounds of silver is a single talent. And so the man who's given five talents was given a huge sum of money. The man who's given two talents was given a huge sum of money, but even the third man who was just given one was given some substantial quan. All right, there's a lot of dough here that was handed to these servants. This was not just like a few pennies. The man who gets five pennies, the man who gets two, and the man who gets one. And I don't blame the man who gets one for burying his because it's only a penny. It wasn't just a penny. And you need to understand that going in, that this is a huge amount. Even the guy who was just given one was given something substantial, something impressive. 58 to 80 pounds of silver. I want to point out some things as we walk through this, this first of two parables that we'll, that we'll consider tonight as we finish out the Olivet Discourse. And the first thing in the parable of the talents is to pay attention to the quantity. The quantity of the talents was uniquely given. The quantity of the talents was uniquely given. The amounts are different as we pointed out. One man got five, one man got two, one man got one. Why not all the same? Why not level the playing field and give everybody the exact same thing because Jesus is not a socialist? He's not! Guess what? I've been given things you have not been given. Na-na-na-na-na-na. But you've been given things I have not been given. That's the way God works. God does not give everybody the exact same thing. That thought alone should blow the problem of envy, jealousy, and comparison right out the window of Christian relationships. The fact that we recognize God has gifted Mary Ann Stickles in a way that He has not gifted Rick Crawford. And He has gifted Rick Crawford in a way He has not given, gifted Mary Ann Stickles. And so Mary and I, Ann and I are not in comparison. We're not judging each other. We're not saying, I'm not saying, man, I wish I could be more like Mary Ann because she can do this, that, and the other. I wish I could to do picture. I wish I had the vision for photography 
that Marianne has. She sees things, and I just, that's not fair, Lord. Why does she get to see things? You know what? We don't think that way because we recognize it's not of Marianne and it's not of Rick, it's of the Lord. And He has given us what we have. He has created us as who we are. That's a very simple thing. But if we would pay more attention to the fact that our differences are God-given differences, we would not compare each other like we so often do. Jesus goes right beyond created differences. And He even says different spiritual gifts. Which I believe is the indication here. Different gifts are given. Different people have different abilities. I joked about this on Sunday, but the whole point that we're sitting before the hearing examiner and the hearing examiner said, Rick, do you have a building fund? And I'm like, nah, I, don't, I don't know. No, I said no at first. And Jeff said, yes, we do. <laughs> no, of course we do. Of course we do. And that was right there a picture of different gifts. You're probably not going to see Jeff up here teaching anytime real soon, although we're working on it. But you know what? You're not going to see me accounting for church finances anytime soon. Praise the Lord. <laughs> different gifts, different people, different abilities, different spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about these things. Three of the most important chapters, by the way, in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Important because they begin with Paul saying, Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. He'll say that four times. Four times Paul will say, I don't want you to be unaware or uninformed or ignorant. I don't want you to miss this. That's how important it is. Once he's talking about Israel. Once he's talking about spiritual gifts. Twice he's talking about the second coming or the rapture of the church. So this is important stuff. I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, he said you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And now he starts to talk about the Holy Spirit, and he says, listen, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Why? Verse 7 says, for the common good. God does it all uniquely, differently, pours out different quantities of talents for the common good, so that the body may be blessed by it. So you don't have, you know, 300 teachers. You know what we would have here in the body? We had 300 teachers. We'd have 300 arguing people 24-7 over what Scripture says. And so, the Lord spreads out those gifts as as He sees fit. It says, One Spirit, or to one is given the word of wisdom, verse 8, through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing or discerning of spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. He lists nine different things there. And there's more than just those nine. Nine different unique gifts. And listen to what he says. This is critical, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. So what you have is up to Him. Oh, you can ask. And please feel free to ask. Paul will say later on, pursue Spiritual gifts. Ask the Lord for spiritual gifts. But don't be upset when yours doesn't look like somebody else's. When someone has something you don't have. Skip on down a little bit here. He says, verse 13, By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We're all made to drink of one Spirit. Down in verse 18 he says, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. So not only... Not only has He blessed us with different spiritual gifts, He has also placed us where He wants us. We were at a meeting of, of pastors today, Les and I. Pastors in Oak Harbor. It was really cool to hang with those guys. About 28 pastors gathered, had lunch together, talked about what's going on in our different ministries and our churches. And I looked out and I said, wow, this is, this is what it's about. The unity of the body. And they're all going to do their own thing in their own churches. Tonight, some, tomorrow night, some Sunday morning meeting different needs, teaching and working with different people, place where God has placed them. I think that's awesome. 
We need to have more of that sense of unity in the larger body of Christ. Skip down. Verse 27, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God's appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Then miracles, gifts of healing, helps. I like helps because helps, the indication there is that's a gift that helps the other gifts. That's someone who goes around and and shores up and helps other people with their gifts. Administrations and various kinds of tongues, and I think it's interesting that tongues is the last on the list. Not because it's not precious. Not because it's not important. But because in terms of significance, there are plenty of other things God can give. All are not apostles, are they, Paul says? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? Do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I'll show you a still more excellent way. Chapter 13, he goes on into love. That's the one. That's the most excellent way. Whatever gifts you've been given, whoever you are in Christ, your primary concern is to love everybody else. And they may not be as gifted as you are. You may be a five-talent person. Mounds of silver all over the place. Can you love a one-talent person? I'll tell you what, if you are a five-talent person, I am assuming that you have a great capacity to love the one-talent person because the Lord, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there is also a quality in the investments. It's interesting to me that Jesus says in talking about these, back in verse 15, that He gave each one according to His ability. So you have the talents that you have because of the person that you are. Because of the way the Lord's created you, but also because of your character and your nature. So the Lord has determined this is what's right for you in this season, in this time in your life. Ephesians 4.15 tells us, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Recognize that each one of these slaves, these servants that were given these talents, were given the talents to provide for and care for the master's household. That's why they were given it in the first place. They weren't given it as a gift. It wasn't a test. It was, I want you guys to look after my household. So so take care of my money while I'm away. And that's why we have our spiritual gifts game, to look after the household. To reinvest what God has invested in us into His house. Unique gifts, uniquely given by the Spirit of God to bring back about a mature body in the Lord. Which brings me to the second point. First was the quantity of the talents was uniquely given. Secondly, the quality of the investments matured accordingly. The quality of the investments matured accordingly. Look at verse 16. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them. He gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents, he gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Simply investing what the Lord has given you, however much, however little it is, simply investing it will bring increase. Standard we've had around my house, I've told my kids growing up. If you will just show up at school, you should get B's. Just show up. You know, and a C to B range right there just by being there. You know? Invest some of yourself. Put yourself into it. And that's where we're looking at A's. And it's the same with the investment of the church. We don't just sit around and, 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 and hope it happens. We invest what God has given us. The gifts of God are powerful, effective things. The spiritual gifts that you have are amazing. And if you will invest them, whether they're big or little, God will bring increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. And He'll do that in and among us if we'll just invest what he's given. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 10 says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What if I use my spiritual gift and nothing happens? Let me answer that directly. It's impossible. You cannot invest your spiritual gift and not get return. 
If you will take what God has given you and turn it around and use it for Him and use it to serve Him, it will, it will, it will bring about the increase. It can't not. There's a double negative there. Did you catch that? It can't not increase. It must increase. If God has given you the gift and you use it, it must bring about increase. It always does. But sometimes in our faith, and prayer is a great example, we think, what if we pray for Jackie's healing and it doesn't happen? Well, that's a faith issue right there. Do we not believe that our Father is sufficient to take care of the things that we cry out for? That's where Jesus is talking about the mustard seed. If you just believe a little bit, don't assume that the gifts you've been given are going to fail because you're not up to handling them. If you've been given the gift and you invest the gift, there's going to be increase. Guaranteed. The man who had five talents got five more. Doubled. The man who had two talents, same thing, doubled. The man who had one talent didn't do jack and got jack. You never have to worry about your return on kingdom investments. Maybe the stock market in America, you need to be a little concerned. But investing in the kingdom, you never have to worry. Because the stock market of God, that stock only goes up. It only goes up. God's provision is as, go- is as good as gold. Or should I say silver? We're talking about silver, aren't we? The talents are silver. As we've seen, these talents are measured out in pounds of silver. I think it was purposeful that Jesus chose a talent instead of a different measure of money. He could have chosen any. He did in different parables. Why the talent? Bible students, do you recall what does silver often portray in Scripture? Anyone know? What is silver a picture of in Scripture? Let me give you some hints. Genesis chapter 23, Abraham redeemed the field of Ephron and the cave of Machpelah for 400 pieces of silver. Genesis 37, Joseph was redeemed from the pit for 20 shekels of silver. Genesis 44, Joseph's silver cup became the centerpiece of redemption for his brothers. Time and time again, and if you just do a word study on silver in the Bible, and you will find it is connected over and over and over with redemption. With redemption. And one of the greatest examples of this is in Matthew 26, which we'll be in next week where Jesus was betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver gang that bought our redemption. So silver is always a picture of redemption in the Bible. The talents in this parable, 58 to 80 pounds of silver each, may well indicate the heart of the Lord that we invest our gifts for redemption's sake. That we invest what we have and we give what we can give, small or great, for the sake of redemption. Seeing people redeemed, saved, restored, brought back. By the way, hiding what the Lord has given you will also cause an increase. That is, an increase of great loss. Hold that thought for a moment. We'll come back to it. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See? I gained five more talents. I love the word see there because it sounds so childlike. See what I did? Look. Look what happened. You know, the the guy is excited about that. See, I've doubled the investment and his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in to the joy of your master. I love this. Number three, the qualifications of the servants determined their promotions. The qualifications of the servants determined their promotions. They're promoted based on their own qualifications. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That a man be found faithful. The qualifications of these slaves is determined, is seen in their faithfulness. It's not, listen, it's not in the guy who had two talents 
somehow getting ten talents like the guy who had five. I mean, you think about the difference just in those two men. One had ten talents to give his master, the other one had four, and the master responded exactly the same way to both of them. Good job! All right! Great work! I'm proud of you! It's not just mathematics that we're talking here. It's qualifications based on faithfulness. And these two servants, they became qualified for greater responsibility because of what, how they handled what they had been given. 2 Corinthians 5.9 tells us, Christians, listen, this is your judgment. Well, not really. Your first judgment happened at Calvary at the cross where your way was paved, was bought, was purchased for all eternity. But there's another judgment that we will go through, we will face, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done whether good or bad. And that is not a judgment of salvation. It's not a judgment of eternity. It's a judgment of gifts and rewards based on how you lived your life. And the more of yourself you have poured into serving whether it's one, two, or five talents doesn't matter. The more you have taken whatever you've been given and used it for the Lord the greater your reward and there will be rewards in heaven when we come before the judgment seat of Jesus. first two slaves did great. The Master calls them good and faithful. And in response to the profitable investment of their talents, their reward was promotion. To a higher level, to a greater place of trust and responsibility and oversight. And I believe, as I've shared many times, this will play out in the kingdom. I believe if you're in Christ, you're going to be in the kingdom, but I believe your responsibility in the kingdom and the level of trust and oversight you have will be directly connected to what you've done in this life, to how you've lived. There is an impact on our actions, our faith, our behavior. In the kingdom. Revelation 1.6, He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. Revelation 5.10, You made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. With Jesus in His royal government. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. But as great as the reward of responsibility is, we all like to be given more opportunity because we have proven ourselves worthy of it. As great as that is, there's an even greater reward indicated by Jesus. I love this phrase, enter into the joy of your Master. I'm going to put you over more things. And I'm going to give you more responsibilities. Cool. You know, you've earned it. But now, come on in to joy. Enter into the joy of your Master. Can you even imagine the expanse of joy that fills the heavens when God smiles? I don't, I don't think we even have tasted real joy until we see the joy of our Father. Experience it firsthand. We get little glimpses of it, don't we? When we're worshiping sometimes and just we feel overcome and we feel like God has got to be happy right now because I'm feeling really good. And we haven't even come close. Maria Daly, she's not here right now. Her laugh cracks me up. (laughs) Cheryl and Lisa were working on tying little braids in her hair. They're actually getting the braids out, weren't you? For hours upon hours, and I kept hearing from my office, they were up at our house the other day, and I just kept hearing her laugh, and I, it was infectious. I had to stop what I was doing and just smile. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the laughter of God? I think it's going to flatten us. When we hear the joy, when we experience the joy of God, I think we're going to be face down on the ground and not in terror, but just, you know, do you remember being a child and laughing so hard you couldn't breathe? You, know, you get to that point where you're just going... <laughs> ah, you know, and you just laugh and silence. I mean, I just ah, enter into the joy of your master. What a gift! What an incredible reward! The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah chapter eight verse ten tells us. Not the seriousness of your religion. <laughs> Tell you what, the seriousness of your religion is your weakness. Write that down. That's good. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is your strength. Genesis 15.1 God said to Abram, it's one of my favorite verses. I've quoted it many times. It says, Abram, I'm your strength and your exceeding great reward. Your reward is not just knowing me. Your reward is me. I'm what it's all about. 
Jesus says, I'm coming, Revelation 22, and, and my reward is with me. Of course it is, Jesus, because you're the reward. You are our great reward. Your joy is our strength. But we have a problem in this parable. We have a slave who didn't really know his master. Verse 24. The one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Okay, first of all, stupid thing to say to your master. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. (laughs) There's a severe judgment here, gang, which is meted out to the one who does nothing with the talents that he's given. This is the person who says, I wasn't given as much as so-and-so. Well, I don't have talents like that guy. I can't sing like she can. You know? I'm not as good a musician as he is. I'm not athletic like that person over there. I don't have, you know, the ability to to stand up in front of people and and do... I, I I I just had one. So I... I held on to it. And I hid it. And here you go, Lord. And God's response to that is, wicked, lazy servant. Wicked, lazy servant. Is that you? Are you the one talent servant? The one who says, I can't do this, I can't think like people, I can't work miracles, I can't do all those great things, I can't, I can't, and my dad said when I was growing up, can't never could do nothing. I hated that phrase, but I heard it all the time. Dad, I can't do this, can't never could do nothing. Hey dad. But he was right. There is no room in the service of the Lord for the I can't. You can with what He's given you. And it may not be much. It may be a little thing. But you can, with that little thing, use it for the Lord. Here's the danger of focusing on what you can't do. You lose sight of what you can. If you're looking at everybody else and all the glorious things that other servants of the Lord are doing, you start to forget about what you have been given that you can do for Him because you're too busy just (laughs) comparing instead of doing what God has enabled you to do. Do what He's given you to do. You know, someone will say, well, I don't have that much and it's not fair. You know? The reality is, the person who has been given much, Jesus said this in Luke 12, 48, everyone who has been given much, much will be required. So the upside is, if you don't have a whole lot in the way of gifts and talents, you just got one or two little things that you do, kind of humble things, great! You're not going to have as much required of you. Just do what you've been given to do. Because something will still be expected of you. Verse 29, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. He's talking specifically, gang, about what we have in terms of our gifts and our investment of those gifts. Verse 30 says, Throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servant is weeping and gnashing his teeth. Why? He's weeping because he has a great loss. He's gnashing his teeth because he is angry with the master over the judgment that he didn't think was fair. And by the way, I think it's interesting. This little guy, one commentator pointed this out. He didn't invest the talent. Why would he not invest the talent? Why not at least put it in the bank? Because if he did, he would have had to put it in his master's name. By burying the talent, if his master never came back, maybe that talent could just remain his. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying this servant was not looking for his master to return. And that's the issue. He was given the talent, but he wasn't waiting. He wasn't expecting the master to come back, so he buried it. And he figured, you know, one, two, three years go by, master doesn't return, I'm one talent richer. 
I don't invest it in the Lord. I just keep it to myself. Well, the Master did come back. And this guy was not ready for it. Is this hell we're talking about in verse 30? Throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an interesting thing because we're talking about three servants of the Master. So I think we can make the very logical parallel or the logical statement that these servants of the Master are believers in the Lord. These are members of the household. It's us. I think we can clearly make that statement. Well, wait a minute, Rick. Because this throws flies in the face of, of, of my security of my salvation. Throw that worthless slave out into the outer darkness. Well, there's disagreement about what this outer darkness is. Could it be hell? Possibly. The phrase was an Eastern expression, an Oriental expression for falling into this, the disfavor of the Master. The outer darkness was outside of the house. You're kicked out. You're booted out. You can't be in the Master's presence. So there are two aspects, gang, two possibilities here. And one is just that he's been booted outside. The other one is this is literally hell. And if you think like I think, it's pretty much the same thing. Because once you're booted out from the presence of the Lord, where else do you have to go? There really is no other option. Two aspects of hell that are equally hellish. Eternal fire and darkness and complete and total separation from the Lord. And you know this, even today in the world, the most evil of people still are under the blessing of God. They still are under the blessing of His presence. They still get the rain in its right season. They get the warmth of the sunshine. They get the beauty of the earth, even though they are wicked, because God's presence is in the world. Take God's presence out of the world. Take God's presence completely away from them, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the outer darkness. Now, don't get me wrong, because the Bible speaks of a literal hell. There is hell. It is literal, it is actual, and it is eternal, according to Scripture. But I can't figure out which one to me would be worse, eternal torment or eternity separated from God. Hell is both. Hell is both. Who does this guy represent? He's the same guy we saw back in Matthew 24, verses 48 through 51. I'll read that to you. If that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he does not know him will cut him in pieces and assign him with a, a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The hypocrite is the Christian in name only. And we talked about this before. It's a person who may even show up every now and then, may have a Christian t-shirt somewhere in the closet, may even wear a cross to work on occasion, but it's all a facade. It's hypocrisy. It's not a real relationship with Jesus. If you have a real relationship with Jesus, when He calls, you're going home. If you don't, different story. And that's the issue, I believe, with this, this slave here. The reason he doesn't invest the talent, he doesn't really believe. He's Christian in name only. But here's the main point. Remember Jesus' words back in verse 25 of chapter 24. Behold, I have told you in advance. In fairness, in mercy, the Lord does tell us of a serious judgment that will follow His second coming. But the focus here remains not on judgment, but on preparation. I've told you in advance so that you don't have to worry about not being ready. I've told you to be ready. I've told you how to be ready. Invest what you've been given. One of the single greatest ways to be prepared for the parousia, the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's read on. Second parable, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another. Stop right there. That's not a parable. Okay? That's what's going to happen. Now He gives a parabolic example of what that will look like. He says, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. He said, I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in, or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison. And you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I was in youth ministry in Federal Way, Washington, a long time ago, and we went to a nursing home. Took the students there from our youth group I'm walking around the nursing home, and back in those days, I'm, I'm a, a whole lot, have a better stomach for these things now, but back in those days, hospitals, nursing homes, these things just, I got weak in the knees. It just like, it freaked me out, you know. And I'm walking around, and I come around a corner, and there's this, this little man sitting in a wheelchair, and as I walk by him, he grabbed me. <laughs> oh, oh, nurse, you know. And he pulled me down to where he was, and he looked at me. And he was confused and, and lost, and, and I recognized him. It's a guy named Clinton, not Bill, different. <laughs> and Clinton, I had seen there and met two or three times before. And he's holding me real close, and, and he's looking at me, and his eyes were all watery and teary, and he, and he was anxious and lost and confused, and, and he looked at me and he went, How's it going, preacher? Because <laughs> he recognized me. And in that moment, I had this this very strong sense and it really stuck with me that I was looking at Jesus. I felt like I was looking at Jesus. And what I mean by that is Jesus says as much as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. You visit me when I'm sick or in prison or naked or thirsty or hungry. You, You meet my needs. You meet the needs of those in need and you have done it to me. And I will never forget that. Just that sense of whose eyes I was looking into. And I think the parallel is really good. For every time we serve, especially those who are most in need, we are touching the heart of Jesus. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Because we're touching Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10.42, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Isaiah 58 verse 6 says, Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, undo the bands of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him? James wrote in James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And the word visit there doesn't mean just say hi and leave. It means to involve yourself with them. To engage. Luke 22.27, Jesus said, Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Isn't that the one who reclines? And yet, I am among you as the one who who serves? So, so, Rick, you're saying the sheep are those who serve and the goats are those who don't, right? It's not that simple. It's not that simple. The season of this particular service that is being offered needs to be recognized. This service that Jesus is talking about happens during the Great Tribulation. Look at how the whole parable begins. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. Who's going to be gathered before Him? All those alive at the end of the tribulation will be gathered before Jesus. We're not talking about the church that has been raptured seven years before, come back with Jesus. We're not talking about faithful Israel. We're not talking about Israel of times past. We're not talking about the remnant that comes back to faith in Jesus Christ. We're talking very specifically 
about the nations. Let me give you some distinctions here. We've got to understand this in order to get this parable. First of all, the difference of the judgments. There's a difference in the judgments that are talked about in Scripture. The person who would consider themselves an amillennialist, that's someone who doesn't really believe there's a literal thousand-year reign, a thousand-year millennial kingdom, someone who thinks that the church age, what we're in right now, is kind of a a generic thousand-year reign, even though we've been here for 2,000 years, and so it doesn't fit real well. But the amillennial says it's just an allegory of of the church. The post-millennialist says that the church is going to get it better and better and better and better and better and better and better, and then hand the kingdom over to Jesus when he comes. Which would indicate the world's getting better and the church is becoming a stronger, more dominant force in the world today. I don't see that happening. Both the amillennialist and the postmillennialist believe in one all-encompassing judgment for all people, all at the same time. It's the vision I had as a child. People lined up for miles among the clouds as one by one, good, bad, Good, good, bad, bad. But you know, like the Lord's just sitting there going. (laughs) You know? (laughs) That's what some believe that there's the second coming of Christ and one big massive judgment. Gang, there are several judgments that the Bible is very specific about. And this cannot be a description of the big judgment day that so many of us grew up believing in. Because if it was, we'd have a big problem. The whole judgment here is based on works and not on grace. It's based on what you have done. If you did these things, if you visited me and fed me and and gave me drink and clothed me and all that, if you did these things, then you get to enter in. If you didn't, boom, you're gone. This cannot be. It doesn't jive with grace. So what's the deal here? Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. The Bible talks about the judgment that Jesus took on the cross when God poured out His wrath, full and furious, on Jesus Christ in that ultimate sacrifice. That is the judgment for believers that secures our salvation. The Bible talks about the judgment seat of Christ that we just talked about a moment ago. Speaking of rewards, believers are rendered for service given. The Bible talks about the judgment that Israel will have. The Bible talks about the great white throne judgment. Check this out, Revelation chapter 20. You can turn there or I'll read it to you. But it's called the great white throne judgment, and not because there are great white people there. (laughs) It's a description of the throne, not the people before it. And verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. By the way, right there, that's what Peter is talking about when he says the earth and the heavens, the present earth and heavens will be destroyed by fire. That's when it happens, right there. Okay? Not before, but after. This is after the millennial kingdom. After the thousand year reign of Jesus is when that happens. Verse 12, he said, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. We've talked about two books here. The book of life, which is the book of grace, and the book of deeds, which is the book of everything you've done. And if you want to be judged by that, all you've got to do is reject grace, and you'll be judged by the book of deeds. I am so thankful I am not going to be judged by that book, because I'd be in bad shape. I'm book of life guy. Okay? And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And they were told, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Which tells me right there, if you're in the book of deeds and not in the book of life, you will not be saved. Well, why would God go through that? Because He's perfectly just. Because everyone will have their day in court. Because the Lord will give everyone an opportunity to speak for themselves. And if they think they were good enough, they're going to be able to make their case before God. But their case will fall woefully short. I took you here for a reason. Answer this question. When does this take place? This great white throne judgment, when does this take place? 
the end of the millennial kingdom, after the thousand year reign of Christ. Who is judged here? It's all those who died without Christ. The sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So it's everybody who died outside of a faith in Jesus Christ is who's being judged here. What is this judgment based on? Again, it's based on deeds. It's based on what they did or did not do. Now go back to Matthew 25 and watch this. Verse 31 again says, When He comes in His glory with all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another. When does this take place? At the beginning of the millennium. At the return of Jesus. It's a different judgment. It cannot be one and the same judgment because this happens right when Jesus comes back and the judgment talked about in Revelation is a thousand years later. Who is judged here? What do your Bibles say? Who is judged here? Nations. Not individuals. This is not judgment day, one person at a time, thumb up or thumb down. These are nations that are being judged, which brings me to the second point here. The first one was just the difference of the judgments. There are different judgments in Scripture. The second one is the division of the judged. The division of the judged. Remember, those being judged in Revelation 20 at the great throne are those who died outside of faith and were raised up for that particular judgment. But in Matthew 25, verse 32, Jesus says something very telling. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's a judgment of Gentile nations. The word there, nations, in the Greek is ethnos. It's used 94 times in the Scripture and it is used to speak of the Gentile nations as distinguished from the nation of Israel. You know, until the church came, there were two kinds of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. That was it. Right now, there are Jews, Gentiles, and the church. When the church is taken out, guess what we're back to again? Jews and Gentiles. And there will be people who come together as people of faith and people who don't. But Matthew chapter 25, verse 37, tells us the righteous answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you or sick and imprisoned and come? When, when did we do all these things? You know what's interesting? The sheep say that and the goats say that. Neither of these groups of people recognized the sheep that they had served Jesus or the goats that they had not served Jesus. Neither one of them recognized. There's an interesting division here between them. The sheep don't recognize because they're acting out of faith. When you act out of faith, you rarely recognize that you're doing something for the Lord. You just kind of do because you're inherently acting by faith. Someone says, I so, I so much appreciate what you did for me that day. And you go, what did I, what did I do? I don't know, I was just doing what Jesus told me to do. Don't thank me. That's a person of faith. That's a picture that we see with the sheep for the goats. The reason they didn't recognize that they were not serving Jesus is because of their unbelief. The exact opposite reason. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so there's a blindness among the goats that they don't even see their way clear to serve. But listen closely to this. And this is the important thing. I told you before, you might not, this might surprise some of you. There are three groups of people in Jesus' parable the sheep, the goats, and there's a third group those who are being served. And Jesus refers to them specifically as these brethren of mine. I used to think that that was just a generic call to all people who are poor and in need. It's not. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking literally about these brethren of Him. Number three, it's the distinctiveness of the Jewish people. Do you notice what, what He's doing when He says... First of all, where is Jesus when He's given this parable? Well, come on, you know where He is, because we're there with Him, sitting there with the olive trees. There's your hand. Where is He? Mount of Olives. You cannot sit on the Mount of Olives and say... And say as much as you did it to these brothers of mine without looking at Jerusalem. As much as you've done it for the least of these. Now, if I said the same thing here in the barn, and you knew I was in the barn when I said as much as you do it for the least of these, you have done it so unto Rick. (laughs) If I said that, you'd go, oh, he's talking about the bridge. He's talking about that that church, that, that group of believers, Christians. 
Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem and He says, as much as you have done it to these brothers of mine, the least of these. And He's talking specifically about Israel. Gang, the judgment of the sheep and the goats is based on how the nations in the tribulation treat Israel. And if a nation goes head to head with or against Israel, that nation, lock, stock and barrel, is going to hell. And if the nation of people cared for Israel, supported Israel, that nation, Ethnos, is going to enter into the Millennial Kingdom. That's very interesting to me. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that the wings of the eagle were given to Israel to take her to a place in the wilderness. And I wonder, I can't be, you know sure about this or dogmatic but I wonder if that's not America the wings of the eagle you know the eagle being our national symbol I wonder if it's not going to be whoever's left in America in those days still recognizing a support of Israel boy I hope so for America's sake it may be a picture there in Revelation 12 of a massive airlift the wings of the great eagle were given to Israel to get her out of Israel into a place protecting the wilderness. And that could be what's being talked about there. I don't know for sure. Again, I won't be dogmatic about that. But what we're looking at here in Matthew 25 in this final parable of the Mount of Olivet teachings is the treatment of Israel by the nations alive during the tribulation. Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. God has not forgotten His people, nor will He ever forget His people Israel. Nor has He forgotten His warnings to anyone who would come against Israel, all the way back to Abraham. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And that covenant promise was repeated more than once. Bless Israel, you will be blessed. Curse Israel, and you will be cursed. And I don't have time to do it tonight, but I could detail for you going down nations in the world who have decided to turn their back on Israel and how those nations have fallen as a result. Great world nations that are no longer great world nations, and you could see their demise immediately after cutting off Israel. Isaiah 62 verse 1 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. In other words, if the Jewish people are precious to God, the Jewish people are precious to me. If Israel is beloved by God, Israel is beloved by me. If for no other reason, then God loves them. And He has chosen them. And so Psalm 122 verse 6 tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, there's one last thing I want you to see. Turn back over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding... And don't worry, I don't have an article to share with you when I'm done teaching tonight. So we'll just be done. Cheryl was saying, you know, you did great last week until you pulled out the two articles and you know, off we went. No, she, she always kids with me. Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss, the abyss and the great chain was in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until these thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, what cracks me up about this is that it's an angel that chucks Satan into the abyss. It's not God. God's busy doing other stuff. He doesn't really need to deal with Satan, so he just dispatches an angel to do it, which shows you how powerful Satan is by comparison. Not as powerful as we may think. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. 
judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and those who had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection and over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. What's the first and second resurrection and all that? Listen to the Revelation study. You'll figure it out. Okay, I'm not going to tell you right now. But in these verses, gang, the basic idea is that following the judgment of nations that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, following the binding of Satan and the establishment of Jesus' righteous authority over all the earth, the millennial kingdom will begin and it will begin absolutely perfect. Now get this. Those who survived the tribulation, the remnant of Israel protected during that time, those tribulation saints, if there are any at that time, who who actually survived, and those of the nations who supported Israel, enter into the millennial kingdom and everything is pristine. It's wonderful. The earth, like Eden again, Jesus ruling and reigning on the throne. Every single person alive throughout the entire world. In the millennial kingdom, righteous before God, forgiven, looking to Jesus as the great ruler. It will be perfect. And then verse 7 tells us, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. That's absolutely, I mean, I would say breathtaking if that wasn't a positive sounding phrase. It's unimaginable. That in a thousand short years, a kingdom that started out perfect now is filled with a people who when Satan is released flock to him like the sands of the seashore to fight against Jesus and against righteousness. Well, why would the devil be released at all? Why does God do this? Gang, this this satanically led rebellion is made up of those who were born and raised in the peaceful, perfect, prosperous, but righteously enforced rule of the millennium. It's going to be hard to sin during the millennial kingdom because Satan's not there. Righteousness is not only enforced by Jesus from the throne in Jerusalem, but by His followers, church, throughout the world, serving, ruling, reigning with Him, and keeping sin at bay. Now after a thousand years of Jesus, the option is given. Okay, you've had a thousand years to see what life on earth is like with Jesus in charge. Accept Him or reject Him. That's your choice. And amazingly, massive numbers of people, countless millions will reject Him and join Satan's battalions to their own horrible demise. Why would God let this happen? One of the great philosophical debates of history has been about whether or not the heart of man is good, bad, or indifferent. This will prove once and for all that the heart of man is bad. That the heart of man truly is evil. That it is only by the grace of God that we are saved. It is only by Him reaching out to us that we ever would have had a hope of salvation. We will enter into eternity following that millennial kingdom and that final lesson. And there will not be a single person throughout all eternity who is able to say I'm here because of me I'm here because I did it I did what was needed I accomplished everything the saved of eternity will know we're there by the grace of God and the grace of God alone right now are you preparing for the parousia are you readying yourself for the coming of Jesus And if you're in Christ, you're saved. Your service is about preparation. Your acts of ministry, your putting to work for the Lord, whatever He's given you, small or great, is about getting ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming. We're called to be ready and be faithful.
Matthew 26 verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. That's how far Jesus was willing to go for you and for me. Now He asks you, how faithful are you willing to be for me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for taking us up to the Mount of Olives. And we thank You for drawing us near You and for allowing us the privilege, Lord Jesus, of listening to this teaching. Of, as it were, being flies on the olive trees to hear what You were saying to these four apostles. Father, we are not worthy of receiving these teachings, but we are so thankful that through Jesus Christ, You have counted us worthy. Jesus, You've told us in advance, so now we know. And I pray that You will cause us to respond with our lives, with everything we have. And as we respond, five talents, two talents, even one, Lord, I pray that we will invest and be ready when You come back. We look forward to that day. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.